Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries, but I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we are finally getting the backlog of requests, and I see that we have a few new ones that have come in, but this is by far a story that I have been waiting to do, so I do hope that I do it justice. Alright, with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game, and as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go this evening. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. And I'm going to warn you, it's a long one, so you might want to pick something that maybe isn't too heavy. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say DeFeo, that will be a single shot. And every time I say Lutz, that's going to be a double shot. I know a couple of you guys out there went, went ahead and put those two together and got your four. Two plus two is four. All right. Now that we've got the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, don your very best bell bottoms, grab that can of Aquanet, and split your hair into your very best Farrah Fawcett feathering. As we hit the Wayback Machine for the 70s and the frightening tale of the DeFeo family murders or the true story of the Amityville horror. Yay! I know you were hoping I was going to get to this one and I finally did. <laughs> I hope I do it justice. In 1965, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife Louise purchased at 112 Ocean Ave- Avenue in Amityville, Long Island. 
It had always been a dream of the couple to own a large family home, and their dream had finally come true when they set eyes on the large home at 112 Ocean. It's known that Ronald DeFeo Sr. had worked for his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership and had spent many years saving the benefits that came from this job. However, Brooklyn had never been the family's dream, and after viewing the large boathouse, the couple knew that they had found their forever home. Within weeks, Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise had moved to their new home with their four children, Ronald DeFeo Jr., Dawn, Allison, and Mark. And shortly after the move, the couple welcomed John Matthew. Five kids all together. Lots of kids. Although they seemed like they had a happy and typical American dream, behind closed doors, it was known that Ronald Sr. could be a hot-tempered man, and he was specifically known to have fits of anger against the oldest son, Ronald Jr. To add to his misery, Ronald Jr. would also become the victim of playground bullying due to his weight and sullen appearance. Shortly after this began, Ronald Jr. became known as Butch. Yet, as Butch grew older, he also became a much larger and stronger man than his father. With this, Ronald Sr. soon retreated from his son, who had now begun to fight back with his father. With this new development of aggressive behavior, Ronald Sr. and Louise decided that the best option was to take Butch to see a therapist. However, this didn't work, and Butch would argue that it was not him who needed the help. With no other options for controlling their son, the DeFeo parents decided the only tactic that they could use was to purchase Butch anything that he ever asked for in a bid to keep him happy. Unfortunately, this tactic did not keep Butch on the right path in life, and before long, he was found stealing from his parents and becoming heavily reliant on heroin and LSD. His violent behavior, potentially due to the heavy drug use, also led to more violent outbursts by Butch and even resulted in him being forced to leave education. At the time of this, Butch was only 17 and his parents decided that he should start earning his own money. With this, Butch began working for his grandfather's business. However, all this did was put money into Butch's pocket, which was then spent on more heroin and more speed. It was around October 1974 when the relationship between Butch and Ronald Sr. reached its breaking point. At some point in the month, Butch had been given the task of depositing $1,800 in cash and $20,000 in checks for his grandfather's business. However, Butch had devised for a quote-unquote robbery to take place. The plan involved one of Butch's friends taking the money and checks and the pair later splitting the loot between them. Around two hours after leaving for the bank, Butch returned and stated that he had been robbed at gunpoint while waiting at a red light. Ronald Sr. was furious at the story and screamed about how they should not have let Butch do this task. 
As the total was a large amount, the police were called and asked to speak to Butch about the robbery. They interrogated him fully and questioned out loud why it had taken him nearly two hours to report the crime to his father and grandfather. Furious at the questioning, Butch had reportedly bashed his fists on the hood of a car. It's believed at this point that Ronald Sr. was convinced the show of anger was a tactic into scaring the police. In the weeks after, the police then contacted Butch and asked if he would come observe some mugshots of men that they believed could have been involved. Butch agreed, yet pulled out in the hours before he was due to arrive. Upon hearing this, Ronald Sr. was heard to tell his son, You got the devil on your back. Butch had then screamed back at his father, You fat prick, I'll kill you. It was around 6.30 p.m. on the 14th of November, 1974, when the doors to Henry's Bar, around two blocks away from 112 Ocean Avenue, swung open. With terror on his face, Butch then screamed, and I quote, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. End quote. Due to the closeness of the community, the DeFeo family were known by everyone in the neighborhood, and soon a large group of men were accompanying Butch back to the family home. Upon arriving, the men walked into the house and were greeted by a horrendous sight. Every single member of the DeFeo family had been shot and killed while they slept peacefully in their beds. It was 6.35 p.m. when the Suffolk County Emergency Dispatch Switchboard received the terrifying call. The call was placed by Joey Uswit, a friend of Butch's. He stated on his call that there had been a murder at Ocean Avenue. When asked how many bodies there were, he replied that he thought that there were four. He also stated that he had been in the bar when a kid came running in the bar he says everybody in the family was killed and we came down here. He then told the police that he was calling from inside the home and that the number of the home was 112. Now I'm going to pause for a second because those of us that are, you know, not familiar with the 70s, this is a time before cell phones and well before beepers. And some people didn't even have landlines in their home. Sometimes you'd have to go to the corner to make a telephone call. But this was a very affluent community, so there was a phone in the house, and one of the biggest questions was, was why did he run to the bar instead of just dialing 911? Anyways, that's just my personal commentary. I'm going to get back to the story now. All right. Police soon uncovered that all of the family members had been shot dead with a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336C rifle. The children had all suffered a single gunshot. The parents had been shot twice each. Each family member was also found to be lying face down in bed, suggesting to the police that they had been asleep at the time of the murders and had not been awoken by any intruding noises. Shortly after 7 p.m., the local patrolman guided Butch to the neighbor's home. Inside their house, many people person people personnel buzzed with chatter as they tried to figure out the next line of investigation. It was in this house where police asked Butch if he had any idea who could have done this to his family. 
It's reported that Butch sat in silence for many moments before stating the name Louis Fellini, a notorious mafia hitman who Butch claimed held a grudge against his father due to an argument in the years prior. With the police believing Butch's word, they decided that Butch may still be a victim and decided the safest place for him would be the police station. At the police station, Butch spoke more openly about his whereabouts in the 24 hours before the murder. He claimed that on the 13th of November, he had been at home and he had stayed up until around 2 a.m. watching a film. It passed the upstairs bathroom and had heard the toilet flushing. He also stated he had seen his brother's wheelchair outside the room and concluded that it must have been his brother in the bathroom. Butch then stated he had not been able to get back to sleep, so he had decided to head to work early. It was around 6 a.m. when he arrived at his grandfather's dealership. While at work, Butch reported that he had rang the home phone numerous times, but that nobody had picked up, and with very little work for him to do, Butch left work around noon. After leaving work, Butch then went to the home of 19-year-old Sherry Klein, a girl who he had called his girlfriend. He stated that he had arrived there somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.30 in the afternoon. He then tried to telephone his family again, but they didn't answer, so he decided to take Sherry shopping in the afternoon. From the mall, they then drove to Butch's friend's home, Bobby. Butch informed Bobby that something was going on at his house as the cars were in the driveway, but nobody was answering the telephone or the doors. Bobby had then told Butch that he planned on visiting Henry's bar at around 6 p.m. Butch had then left Bobby and Sherry and went and spent the afternoon with another group of friends where he drank and shot heroin. He then arrived at Henry's bar a little after 6 Again, when in the company of Bobby, Butch stated that he would have to go home and break a window to check on his family. Bobby had told Butch he had to, to do what he had to do. With this, Butch left. Butch then returned shortly after to state that his mother and father had been murdered. Once his statement had been written and signed, the police then questioned again why Butch thought Louis Fellini was the killer. Butch explained in detail that Fellini had lived with the family for a period of time. He also stated that during that time, Ronald Sr. and Fellini had worked together to create a hiding spot in the basement where Ronald Sr. had stashed the family's gems and cash. Following this, Fellini and Ronald Sr. had then had an argument when Fellini criticized some work that Butch had done at the dealership, and Fellini left the family home. By this point, the police had no reason to believe Butch was involved in the murder of his family. However, on the 15th of November, at around 2.30 a.m., Detective John Sherville was finishing off the whole search of the crime scene when he decided to go into Butch's room. Although the room had been briefly checked once, John felt compelled to search one last time. As he moved around the bedroom, he then found two cardboard boxes. One was labeled Marlin Rifles 22 and the other 35. Although Sherville had not known that a 35 had been used in the murders, he decided to bag the bullets as evidence and transported them to the local police station. And it was here he was informed that the bullets were an exact match to those used in the murders. 
With this suspicious new evidence, the police decided to conduct a line of inquiry into the life of Butch. They already knew that he had a serious drug addiction in relation to heroin, and so decided to call in Butch's friend, Bobby Kelsky. As a close friend of Butch's, and because he spent the majority of the 14th with Butch, the police believed Bobby was the best person to ask for a character reference. During questioning, Bobby confirmed that that Butch was obsessed with guns and that he had been involved in the staged robbery of of the bank receipts in the week before his family's murder. With this new evidence, the police decided that it was time to arrest Butch. It was at 8.45 a.m. on November 15th when Butch was read his rights and taken to the local police station for further questioning. During the interrogation, the detectives highlighted that Butch had stated he was up at 4 a.m. and had heard his brother in the bathroom. The police knew that this was a lie as the time of death had been established as being between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. They had also concluded that it was early in the morning as every family member was tucked up in bed for the night when they were murdered, and not during the day like Butch had once suggested. As Butch began to crumble, the detectives pushed harder, and this was when they informed Butch that they had the the thirty-five caliber bullets from his bedroom. In a desperate bid to pin the blame on someone else, Butch informed the police that at 3.30 a.m. he was awoken to a gun pressed to his head. The person behind the gun was Louis Fellini. Butch then stated that Fellini and a companion had led Butch through the house and gone into every bedroom and murdered his family. Butch then said he had gone round the rooms and picked up all the evidence and discarded it. This was the information the police needed. Why did Butch dispose of the evidence if he knew he was innocent? Finally, when questioned about what happened, Butch finally broke down and informed the detectives. It all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. In the early hours of the 14th of November, Butch sat alone in his bedroom and was brewing with anger. He had a plan in his head to murder his own family so they would cause him no more nuisance. Due to the fact Butch had his own room, he was able to collect a large collection of guns and bullets right underneath his family's nose. And this was the 70s, you know, before any gun control had ever been put in place. So yeah, it was a lot easier to get guns and ammunition then. Anyways, grabbing the 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his closet, Butch left his room and headed for his parents' bedroom. Upon entering, he stood at the foot of their bed and watched them sleeping, and he shot his father. The bullet tore through Ronald Sr.'s kidney and exited through his chest. He then fired again, and this time the shot was fatal, piercing the base of his father's spine. By this point, Butch's mother had begun to wake with the noise, but she too was shot twice. The bullet shattered her ribcage and caused her right lung to collapse. Although the rifle was loud, none of the children had awoken from their slumber and were blissfully unaware that their parents had been murdered. Butch then made his way to the room of Mark and John. He then shot them both once, but the bullet severed their internal organs. Mark was instantly dead. However, John twitched due to the damage to his spinal cord, but eventually passed away. Butch then made made his way to the bedroom of Dawn and Allison. 
As he entered, Allison stirred in her sleep and watched as Butch placed the rifle to her face and fired a shot. He then shot Dawn in the head. The attack had taken Butch less than 15 minutes. Following the cold-blooded murders, Butch had a shower and then trimmed his beard. He then collected his clothing and his rifle, wrapped them in a pillowcase, and headed out to the car. He then told the police he threw the contents out into a drain out in Brooklyn. The trial against Butch began on the 14th of October, 1975. It was during the initial trial that Butch's defense lawyer, William Weber, stated that Butch was innocent due to reasons of insanity, in which Butch had claimed vivid voices speaking to him. However, the prosecution lead, Gerard Sullivan, stated that this wasn't true and that Butch was a sane, methodical murderer. Butch then claimed that he had killed his family in self-defense after hearing voices plotting against him. This was also backed up by the psychiatrist for the defense, Daniel Schwartz. The prosecution psychiatrist, Dr. Harold Zolan, maintained that although Butch was a frequent user of heroin and LSD, he believed Butch to have an antisocial personality disorder and that he was well aware of his actions at the time of the crime. He, it was also highlighted that Butch had been able to tell investigators where he had abandoned the murder weapon and evidence, something they believed he would not, been, would not have been able to do if he was not conscious of his actions. Well, they got him there. Anyways, on the 21st of November, 1975, Butch was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. On December 4th, he was sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life. Following his conviction, Butch has since come forward numerous times to state different versions of events. In 1999, Butch went as far to state that it was his sister who had murdered his family, that she was in the company of an accomplice but said accomplice had fled before Butch could get a look at their face. Butch then stated he had killed Dawn as the pair argued over the rifle. Butch has also said that his mother was involved in the murders and that in the days before the murders, he had been called home to defuse a situation between his father and Dawn. However, none of these claims were believed to have been true. History doesn't record what a bunch of Long Island newspaper reporters thought that they would hear on February 13, 1976, as they were hustled into a modest book-lined attorney's office in the village of Pachago, New York. In that room, that morning, the press would be introduced for the first time, but certainly not the last, to one George and Kathleen Lutz, two relative newlyweds of indeterminate employment who had very suddenly left their dream home in Amityville the month before. Rumors had been floating through this sleepy area on the south shore of Long Island that the Lutzes had left because the house was haunted. George and Kathy Lutz, in their mid-thirties, looked like a normal couple, at least normal for the seventies. He had lots of pin-straight, light brown hair and a full beard. She had a blonde, feathered haircut that framed a round, sweet face. And in this, pre this press conference... George did most of the talking. He took the tone of someone who had been forced, reluctantly and after long consideration, to come forward with his story. 
He said he he didn't want to get into the details, but yes, he said a very strong force had driven his family from the home. He wanted to correct some facts. No, his family had not seen human shapes or flying objects in their home. And no, they had not heard wailing sounds or seen moving couches. But yes, they had left the house after only owning it for a month with just three changes of clothes apiece because of their concern for their own personal safety as a family. And that was about all he was willing to share at that time. The reporters tried to press Lutz for more details, but he would not be specific. As the Newsday writer reported with evident frustration, and I quote, Lutz did say he would not spend another night in the house if asked to do so by researchers, but he also said he's not planning to sell the house right now, end quote, the reporter wrote. Within a day of the press conference, the lawn of this house, a Dutch colonial perched on the waterway at, you guessed it, 112 Ocean Avenue, was full of people who had decided to come investigate matters for themselves. They came mostly from neighboring towns in Long Island. They parked along the street. Some were accompanied by their children. A father who had brought his 12-year-old son said, I'm interested in unexplained phenomena. I was here the other night with my other son, and we watched the electric meter for a while, and I swear it slowed down. Of course, it could have been the refrigerator. One would like to believe that journalists have enough common sense not to believe in ghosts. But in the 1970s, American culture was awash in superstition. It was a time, much like our own, filled with economic and political instability. The Lutz's family's press conference took place just 18 months after Watergate had forced Richard Nixon to resign the presidency, and the onslaught of upsetting news had led everyone to question conventional facts and truth. It was unclear whether the stable laws of the universe still held. Anger and fear were everywhere, and often enough, they bloomed into outright delusions. Couple that with the remnants of the New Age philosophies of the 1960s and shake in a little bit of good old American folklore and you got something like what the Lutz's family stories would eventually become. The Amityville Horror. A story that would inspire several books and more than a half a dozen films spanning from the 1979 original blockbuster starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder to the, well, poorly reviewed middling effort released in October, called Amityville, The Awakening, starring Jason, Jennifer Jason Lee and Bella Thorne. Though a lucrative and ubiquitous emblem of American mythology, it's telling how dull the story actually is when summarized. Young American family moves into house where there was once a mass murder. Disturbing phenomena follow, including, as reported in the first book on the case, written by a man named Jay Anson, with the paid cooperation of the Lutzes, and later in the screenplay Anson wrote for the 1979 film version, green slime leaking from the house's keyholes, a spirit yelling, get out, to a visiting priest, a child beginning to speak to an imaginary friend named Jody, the father sees in a window a pig with red glowing eyes. Cold spots appear mysteriously in the house. A room full of flies torments the family. Eventually, the family has enough and flees.
Research eventually tells them that their house was not only the scene of a murder, but the alleged site of an ancient enclosure for the sick, mad, and dying operated by the Shinnecock Indian Nation. Many of these elements were already part and parcel of the American horror story, especially, you know, that last one about the Indians, the rather racist tracing to the Indian burial ground, which had long been a kind of catch-all explanation for paranormal phenomena in American storytelling. The notion had, for example, also surfaced repeatedly in the work of the master, Stephen King, as in The Shining and Pet Cemetery. But, Pike Place Market in Seattle is thought to have been built on a Squamish Indian ground, and people also claim it's haunted. What was unusual about the Amityville Horror, though, was that in a way, the story about the story was more interesting than the alleged haunting itself. It hovered on a strange, tricky edge of fact and fiction. Some players from the start were upfront about admitting that it was just a hoax. Others insisted to their graves that the story was true, that the Lutz family had been haunted by something. It's just, not, it's just that the something may not have been paranormal. On November 13, 1974, the six members of the DeFeo family, Father Ronald, Mother Louise, two daughters and two sons, were shot to death in their beds there in that home at 112 Ocean Avenue. The third son, a 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., initially told police he'd innocently discovered the bodies in the locked house around 6 p.m. later that day. But as he told that story that day and he saw the bodies, he fled to the, the house to the bar down the street, arriving there in a state of hysteria as one man lingering at the bar told reporters. He took the men back to the house and the police were called, who doubted Butch's claims to innocence almost immediately. Within two days of finding the bodies, he would be on the hook for six second-degree murder charges. The police had come to believe that he'd committed the crimes because he wanted insurance money, a sum of about $200,000. And adjusting for today, that would be roughly $960,000, not even a million bucks. DeFeo's attorney was a bald, pated, laconic man by the name of William Weber. From the time of his arraignment, Weber insisted that DeFeo was insane. They blamed the dead Ronald DeFeo Sr. for his son's dysfunction, arguing that he had been an abusive, bullying man. But by the time the case came to trial, just months, months before the Lutzes were to buy the Ocean Avenue home and move in, DeFeo's lawyers had hired a psychiatrist who said that their client had been in a state of paranoid psychosis as he moved through the house and shot each of his relatives one by one. A psychiatrist hired by the prosecution agreed that DeFeo was mentally ill, but insisted that he still knew that what he had done was wrong and therefore just didn't fit the legal definition of insane. And of course, the jury sided with the prosecution, as we know. DeFeo received six concurrent life sentences for the death of his siblings. When a Newsday reporter at the trial asked Weber if he thought the verdict against his client was fair, he did not reaffirm his client's innocence or make the usual strident sort of statement one expects from a criminal defense attorney. Instead, he shook his head and said, I'm glad I wasn't a member of that jury. But Weber clearly still wanted to try to argue the case. 
It said to reporters during the trial that he was charging DeFeo only a modest fee and that I'm getting more out of this from the publicity. The tale of a haunting gave Weber a chance to put the case back into the spotlight. It was, in fact, in Weber's office that the Lutz's February 1976 press conference took place, although he did not present himself as their attorney. Weber told reporters that day that now, having heard the Lutz's family's full story, the story they were not entirely sharing that day with the reporters, he thought he could reopen the DeFeo case. The implication was clear. The tale of paranormal phenomena in the house suggested that DeFeo had, in fact, been out of his mind. He'd been driven out of it by this supernatural current in the place. Of course, Weber said, he could not tell them more just that moment. He still had to discuss it with his incarcerated client. And he was looking into filing a motion, he said, though he never said what kind and none ever happened to have been filed. As of now, Ronald DeFeo was, well, still an inmate in a correctional facility in Fallsburg, New York. For 14 months after the Lutzes fled the home in Amdeville, it stood empty. Then a family, by the name of Cromarty, had moved into the house in the spring of 1977. Jim Cromarty would later tell a reporter, We moved in on April the 1st. We were out here like a week, and then came this good housekeeping article when we started to get a lot of visitors. The good housekeeping article was by a man named Paul Hoffman, who reportedly written about the case for the New York Daily News, was published in the April 1977 issue under the title, Our Dream House Was Haunted. The article would swiftly become the subject of a lawsuit by the Lutzes, who claimed the article invaded their privacy. Just to note, this lawsuit in which the Lutzes sued Hoffman, Good Housekeeping, and the New York Daily News, and several other parties for invasion of privacy, ultimately wasn't successful. The publications were thrown out of the case by judges, and claims against Hoffman and the remaining defendants were official, officially settled for undisclosed terms in late 1979. But five months later, Jay Anson published the book he'd written with the Lutz's input, The Amityville Horror, A Devil of a True Story. The Los Angeles Times reviewer would call it that. The book swiftly hit the bestseller list and stayed there for 42 weeks. By 1981, the book had gone through 37 printings and sold over 6.5 million copies. The film rights sold to Hollywood, with Anson attached to write the screenplay. But as the phenomena grew, there were two key doubting voices. Throughout their ownership of the house, which lasted a decade, Jim and Barbara Cromarty repeatedly told the press they'd never seen anything unusual in the house. That should have been good news. They had bought the place cheap because of all the bad publicity. They'd bought the house for $55,000, whereas the Letzit had, had bought it for $80,000, which was a steal at that time, by the way. Instead of spirits, the Cromartys complained, they were haunted by what could only be called paranormal tourists who knocked on the door at all hours of the night and day. These people sometimes called themselves witches. Sometimes they cursed out the Cromartys and told them that they would die. Sometimes they were drunk, and sometimes, as the family told Newsday in 1978, they were just weird. And I quote, I think one of the funniest things was when we woke up at 3 o'clock and heard this guy with a bugle playing taps on the front lawn. 
I opened the window and applauded and said, Kid, you've got a real good sense of humor, said Jim Cromarty. The Cromartys would eventually sue the Lutzes, Anson, and book publisher Prentice Hall for $1.1 million in assorted damages for fraud, trying to get them to admit that the subtitle of Anson's book, A True Story, wasn't quite what it was cracked up to be. The suit actually settled for an undisclosed six-figure sum in 1982. The subtitle still stands, but sometimes it seems even Jay Anson thought True Story might have been an exaggeration. Whenever he was asked by the press if he actually believed the story he had written, he usually gave some wry reply. And in 1978, in People Magazine, he stated, I'm a professional writer. I don't believe and I don't disbelieve. I leave that up to the reader. To the New York Times in that same year, he stated, I believe these people believe that they went through all the things they saw and heard. Then, in 1980, at the age of 58, he up and died of a heart attack, and so never got around to explaining why so much of what is claimed in his book, police visits, Catholic priests, ghostly experiences, stormy weather, turned out to be, well, utter bunk, according to everybody involved. But then few of the participants here were ashamed of copying to embellishments. William Weber, for example, was quite prepared to say that it was all a lie, granted that he also wanted to take credit for having come up with the great idea in the first place. On the day that the film version was released in July 1979, Weber went to the press and said he and the Lutzes had made up the entire story over a bottle of wine. While he said that they did claim to have had some kind of supernatural experience in the house, he said it was also with his help that they began to elaborate on the details of the story after looking at evidence of Ronald DeFeo's crime, which he provided to them. The famed green slime, for example, that was blood. The flies were based on flies from the crime scene. Weber quite mildly explained later that he had been approached and told that a publisher would happily offer a large advance for a book about the DeFeo case. He tried to get the Lutzes to go in on it with him. His notion was that some of the royalties could be split with DeFeo himself, effectively paying him for the murder, as George Lutz pointed out in a British documentary on the case 20 years later. After hearing that, Lutz said he and his wife stopped speaking to Weber when they cut the deal with Prentice Hall and Anson. Weber wasn't involved. They had effectively cut him out of any future deal. Weber tried to carry on by himself. The freelance writer he en- he'd enlisted to write the book would eventually publish an account of the Lutz's experience in the, in the house in, you guessed it, good housekeeping. But the Lutzes sued him for invasion of privacy. That suit settled, too, in 1979. DeFeo later corroborated Weber's account, too, saying he'd never wanted to claim insanity. That said, his credibility was suspect, and his explanation for the crime was more baroque. His mother and his sister had been involved in the killings as well. In an appearance before his parole board in 1999, DeFeo explained that he had actually only killed one of his sisters, Dawn, who was 17. He claimed she had been responsible for the rest of the murders herself, and insisted that I love my my family very much. Luckily, the parole board didn't believe him. The only people, in fact, involved with Amityville who insisted that it was real were the Lutzes themselves. 
Their relationship to the story always seemed to swing between absolute faith in its truthfulness and ambivalence about telling it to anyone. They gave the press conference, then promptly fled Long Island for California. They only agreed to cooperate with Anson and gave a few press interviews pegged to the book. But in those interviews, they were suddenly the same reluctant, guarded couple they'd been in the original press conference. For an interview with the Los Angeles Times, for example, they demanded that the reporter not reveal precisely where they live, take photographs of the inside of their house, or photographs of the children. The only thing George Lutz was eager to get across in that interview, the reporter said, was that the family was happier now for the experience they'd gone through. The experience he still seemed somewhat reluctant to articulate in detail. And he stated, we now appreciate good things more of their current state. We are closer together. We value materialistic things less. And then later he'd add cryptically, privacy is not just about where we live, but also about our thoughts. They are no one else's business. Kathy Lutz died in 2004. George Lutz in 2006. But over the years, George in particular would give a few more interviews, slowly opening up the frame. Still, he was this strange, enigmatic figure on the truth of it all. He insisted the family had experienced a horror, but he also came to admit that certain elements of the story, that green slime in particular, were embellished and never accurate. And George's admission of such piecemeal, small inaccuracies allowed everyone to doubt the whole thing, to assume that it was all Weber, a simple case of a hoax all along. But his children have, have complicated that as well, because at least two of them clearly believe that there was a haunting. Danny Lutz and Christopher Quarantino, the two older Lutz children, say they remember the events, shadowy figures, and being thrown up a staircase by malevolent spirits. And when Danny Lutz told his story in a recent bizarre documentary called My Amityville Horror, he was in evident turmoil about it. And he, he stated, and I quote, I was possessed by a spirit that I could not get rid of on my own, he insisted. Actually, Danny Lutz claimed the disturbances in the Amityville house had nothing to do with the DeFeos. He said it was actually George who had summoned the bad spirits with his dabblings in the occult. A vain, domineering stepfather, he had terrorized his stepchildren. He sometimes beat them with a wooden spoon as punishment. Christopher Quarantino, the middle Lutz child, has told similar stories and also blames George for the haunting. The third Lutz child, Missy, has never spoken publicly about her experience. But still Danny Lutz insists there was a force larger than George Lutz at work in the house, too. Evil, demonic spirits, he says, with absolute cert certainty in the documentary. I know they exist. Which, in one of the many weird parallel truths and untruths of this whole messy story of the Amityville Horror, he seems to absolutely believe. So the question becomes, what do you believe? And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of the episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope that you'll take some time and reach out to me and share your thoughts on today's episode. You know you can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you want to tell me what you think about today's episode, you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line, because I do reply to every single email. 
And on that note, my darlings, that is all the time that I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. (laughs) This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.